tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Not done with the Royal Society Medal winners. Very sciencey tonight, but they're a great chat. Uh, we'll be speaking with Bruce Haywood, uh, biologist and geologist, who got a big flash medal from the Royal Society. He studies a thing called forams, foraminifera. You wipe them off your shoe, but you don't even know. But boy, they can tell us a lot about the deep past. He's a great chat. He'll be coming up in the next hour. But after the next commercial break, Orson Welles has a new movie out. Yeah. He's been dead for years. It's this project that's been going forever and ever and ever. He died, uh, left it all in the study, behind the bookshelf. Someone yoinked it out and has been working on it. How long has it been in the making? Since about 1970-something. James Crute will explain. You'll be able to see this movie, finally, on Netflix very, very shortly. Weekend Variety Wireless At the Movies with James Crute on Radio Live Okay, listeners, there's a movie coming out and it looked like a movie, you know, in the, in the PR and the marketing wing they say like no other, not to be missed well... The first bit of this has got to be true, doesn't it? We're talking Orson Welles, The Other Side of the Wind. James Crute's on the other end of the line. G'day, James. Hello, Graham. How are you? Good. We're going to play the trailer for this thing. I don't know if it'll give you much of an idea. This annoying person playing the buddy drums throughout it. I don't know why. <laughs> but uh, for whatever it's worth, it's only 45 seconds long. So here we go. She can't afford the Ernest Hemingway of the cinema. I just want to know what he represents. The man is infested with disciples. I'm the apostle. Just like me and God. How could you tell us apart? Can I person in a movie? The other side of the wind. What's that about the movie? We don't talk about the movie. Is that what this movie's about? Well, we don't actually know. What do we know? Jake is just making it up as he goes along. He's done it before. Movies and friendship. Those are best friends. Well, here it is. If anybody wants to see it. What on earth is going on? Orson Welles has been dead for so long. The Other Side of the Wind, a 2018 film directed, co-written and co-produced and co-edited by... Orson Welles. Yes, look, it is an amazing <laughs> feat, I guess. 34 years after his death or something like that. Yeah. And 33 after he played a planet in Transformers movie. <laughs> uh, he's back. This movie, first production began in 1970. It took him six years to shoot the thing and he never, ever finished editing it. But of course, one of his great mates, 
Peter Bogdanovich, who of course was the director of things like The Last Picture Show, etc., and is the star of this. You know, in the background, he's he's had this footage and has been trying to get someone to sort of help him. Enter Netflix, ah. who have helped put this together, as well as Frank Marshall. One time he was part of kind of Steven Spielberg's empire, part of the Disney empire at one stage, and he's also in the movie, but is best known as a Hollywood producer. And so these guys have all got together, and with the help of Netflix, have cobbled together, and I guess cobbled together is probably the right description, this amazing, I would call it a historical document, a curio, a curate's egg, a, a very much a, an Orson Welles kind of thing. Um, it uses a variety of film stocks. No shot is essentially the same. It just goes all around the place. It's kind of a scattershot thing that's at once kind of a, I guess, a, a lament for the passing of the Hollywood old guard. I don't know if it was really, but also a kind of mockumentary of the state of Hollywood in the 1970s and also sending himself up a bit as well. It's all about this director who's played by John Huston, who, of course, was a director. A great, great director. Exactly, but I don't know whether he's a great, great actor, but he's essentially stand in for Orson, who I guess had gotten a bit too larger than life by this stage, who's playing this guy who's celebrating his 70th birthday, but his latest film is in big trouble. He can't finish it. Hmm, Sounds familiar to this. Uh, His leading man is sort of disappeared and it details the events of this big party as he tries to show a screening of this movie within a movie called The Other Side of the Wind. And it is Um, Orson Welles for the most part behind the camera saying cut and action. Yes and in fact uh, uh, of course part of this uh, are a whole lot of guys trying to interview the J.J. Hannaford, the, the director played by Houston, and one of them, you can hear the distinctive tones of Orson Welles. Oh. So he's kind of in it, but not in it. I guess, in a lot of ways, it's an interesting bookend to the film career that started with Citizen Kane, because here's a kind of story that's trying to get to the mystery of this enigmatic character. i just got one huge, big that burnt, burnt, burnt. What the hell is going on? This is one of the finest directors that's ever pulled on shoes. Why has it taken this long for someone to find the funding, which wouldn't take much because got the footage, to put this damn thing together so we could see it? Okay, there's a couple of reasons, I think. And there are th- things that have explained... In fact, Netflix have even put out a kind of little featurette which kind of explains all the troubles that Wells had. Okay. But I think the problem was it took him so long to shoot it. Now, Hollywood, during those six years from 1970 to 1976, changed so much. Now, you're talking about the rise of the likes of Coppola, of Spielberg. Yeah. Everything became about the blockbuster by the time he'd finished in 76. And there's a little bit of humorous tension around that Mm. but I think he ran into trouble with some of the politics that were a part of this he ran into trouble in terms of finances to be honest the impression I get and the impression when you look at it he hadn't really gotten very far with the editing at all so it did require a major undertaking and I think it's one of those things that I don't want to cast any aspersions on him because I think Orson Welles is one of the greatest actors, theatre guys, you know, just inventive minds, certainly of last century. But it's kind of like where you go through the great uncle's hoarded stuff after he's died and try to piece together all the things that he's got into some kind of coherent thing. I see, but just how he looms large in directing history. Here's this guy who's been amazing in theatre, some of the most amazing stuff in radio ever. Then he directs his first movie, Citizen Kane. Oh, my freaking God. He was 
also the kind of Kenneth Branagh loved all that Shakespearean stuff and wanted to put it on film and studios were a bit kind of iffy about that there's this famous Othello which screened at the film festival a few years ago there are some scenes where he's on one side of the door and the footage of him on the other side of the door was shot four years later wow he constantly seemed to have this butting of heads with studio bosses financiers and things like that Mm. uh, because he wanted to have his vision and not theirs of course he decamped to Europe of course for quite a, a long period of time and then this was one of his comebacks if you like was the other side of the wind look it feels very much a film of that 1970 period happy trippy all over the shop kind of vibe feels very much like a film that Antonioni might have made or a film that that monkey movie Bob Rafelson's head or you know very much Dennis Hopper who actually appears in this as well but yeah. also the film within a film reminded me a lot of um, Joe Dorowski's sort of The Holy Mountain or El Cid and anyone who's seen those they were nutso trippy things that made no sense unless you were on something right now after Citizen Kane the magnificent Ambersons people went oh where's your genius gone and he, he never really captured that again, did he, or have I missed a meeting? There are hints of it. I mean, Touch of Evil, possibly his acting performances were kind of better known. You think of The Amazing Third Man. So, yeah, and yeah, I'm talking as a director. Yeah, yeah no, but as yeah. a director, yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, Othello is an astonishing film in some ways. Yeah. And a lot of people quite like one of his last films, and I'm pretty sure it was shot after this particular, on the other side of the wind, if fake. Uh, I guess without that, you probably wouldn't have had Peter Jackson's Forgotten Silver and the like. Right. You know, this kind of idea of taking the documentary format and kind of spinning it on its head and adding a dramatic thing to it. Yeah. You know, he was really hard to pin down, and he didn't fit within the Hollywood stim, it seemed. Big friends with Ernest Hemingway as well. Yes. That's one thing that's mentioned in this movie, is that Houston's character is described as the Ernest Hemingway of cinema, and that's where you go, well, come on. This is, <laughs> this is Orson Welles, it's not John Houston. Now, Orson Welles, he did become disgruntled. He had a broken bottle sitting in his guts about the Hollywood industry, didn't he? Yeah, I think that's probably a fair call. I mean, there's so many movies that were unmade. That's what, that's one thing. And, and he often appeared to do things a little bit out of spite. Yeah. You know, he didn't get on with certain people. But I guess, you know, in terms of a track record of projects that are littered with not having been made, old Terry Gilliam probably is the modern director who's had the kind, some kind of bad luck or bad management. Oh, yeah. That Don Quixote thing he's tried to make about four times. I think he finally got it out, but I don't know whether we'll ever see. Oh, far out. Okay. Citizen Kane, frequently up there with the greatest movies ever made. How does it sit with you? Yeah, I think it probably is. I think it vies with Hitchcock's Vertigo, a few others, as well as a couple of personal favourites from the 1980s. You know, you are a product of your childhood. Oh, of course, and one, one has tastes as well. But tell me why you rate it as one of the best. Sure, I think it's just... It, the way it kind of reinvented Hollywood storytelling at the time, it kind of blurred the lines between what might have been considered a, a documentary. It changed up the idea of a biopic. It was quite brilliantly thinly veiled version of the truth of William Randolph Hearst. It had a, a terrific mystery at the centre of it, but it also used so much kind of cinematic trickery at the same time too and was clever and funny. There's something about 
him as a performer that makes it so great. There's something about the amazing deep focus, as they say, that was invented where mm-hmm. they created this idea of depth within the movie. But also, you know, the spinning newspapers, the... <laughs> You know, it's invented so many things that have been oh. borrowed over the years. Is that where that came from? I believe so, yes. All the ships to see, let's go to rest. Spinning newspaper. There's just something about it which, which stays with you once you've seen it and manages to make it stand up to repeat viewings. Okay. Now, I just really wonder about Alfred Hitchcock when I read that Orson Welles was voted the greatest film director of all time in two Mm. British Film Institute polls amongst directors and critics. This isn't fans out there. Hitchcock should win for consistency, shouldn't he? Or are they a bit snippy about all the television stuff he did? That was the problem, and he never got an Oscar for that or anything. And also, of course, he did the opposite to Wells, didn't he? He got sick of the Brits and buggered off to the States. I'm Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, bottom teeth. Good evening. I'm Alfred Hitchcock. So this is a very, very strange thing that's happening on Netflix. This is part of this trend where things that might have turned up at a film festival or might have got an art house cinema release, it's only on Netflix. Right. This is this is future. I don't care about the format as long as you can see it. Orson yeah. Welles himself may be turning in his large grave because it's not at a cinema. I think he liked the idea of auditorium people there watching something together. Uh, yeah, no, I think you're probably right. But as I say, it is very, very odd. I think it's a, 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 something you kind of have to let wash over you. Oh, good one. Well, maybe uh, even David Lynch, my yes, favourite director, is... may have learned a thing or two from uh, Orson yeah, Welles. I, I think you will find some Lynchian elements within it, definitely. Yeah, OK. What is your favourite movie? Oh, you probably don't have one. Have you got a couple? <laughs> uh, for a look, just in terms of pure enjoyment, big fan of Back to the Future. Oh, great. As historically awful as it is, there's something about Braveheart. Okay. Along the lines of Citizen Kane, I'd probably go all about Eve. Ah, yes. With Bette Davis and Ann Baxter and, oh, Addison DeWitt, you are mine. Oh, God, that script. Anyway, okay, um, we are probably losing people. Orson Welles, he started running out of money, too, for someone that famous. It's crazy. And he was doing voiceover ads for frozen peas and things like that. Yep. Exactly. But you look at the number of actors who now do voiceover ads in foreign countries, you know? The, 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 as famously sort of depicted in Lost in Translation, Bill Murray. Right. Doing Suntory time, you know? Yeah. And Japan is a big market for actors who need a bit of extra cash. All right. Here's one of those clandestine recordings of Orson Welles doing a voiceover with the voiceover directors from the advertising company helping along and running into the personality of Orson Welles. James Crute, thank you very much. We'll say it again. Uh, The movie is The Other Side of the Wind on at Netflix. Here's Orson in the studio. We know a remote farm in Lincolnshire where Mrs Buckley lives. Every July, peas grow there. Do you really mean that? Yes. In other words, I'd start half a second later. Don't you think you really want to say July over the snow? Isn't that the fun of it? It's, it, if you, if you make it almost when that shot disappears, it'll make my... I think it's so nice that, that you see a snow-covered field and say every July peas grow there. We know a remote farm in Lincolnshire where Mrs. Buckley lives. Every July peas grow there. We are even in the fields, you see. Yeah, we are. We're talking about them growing and she's picked them. Yeah. <clears throat> On what? On in July. I don't understand you, then. When's, what must be over for July? Um, when we get out of that snowy field. Well, I was out 
weeks. We were onto a can of peas, a big dish of peas when I said in July. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, always. I'm always past that. You are? Yes. Well, that's about where I say in July. Can you emphasize a bit in? In July. Why? That doesn't make any sense. Sorry. Um, There's no known way of saying an English sentence in which you begin a sentence with in and emphasize it. Get me a jury and show me how you can say in July and I'll go down on you. That's just idiotic if you'll forgive me by saying so. That's just stupid. In July. I'd love to know how you emphasize in and in July. Impossible. Meaningless. I think all they were thinking about was that they didn't want to. He isn't thinking. Well, sir, can we just do one last Yeah. And it was my fault. I should. I said in July. If you can leave every July. You didn't say it. He said it. It's every July. Your friend. Every July? So after this show... No, you don't really mean every July. It is. That's but that's a that's bad copy. It's in July. Of course it's every July. It's too much directing around here. Weekend Variety Wireless. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of Max Cryer with us. Hello, Max. Hello, Graham. How's your week been? Oh, oh well, I tell you what, this week's series of questions uh, needed quite a lot of work. Uh -huh. um, I enjoy it, but it wasn't easy. We've got a few tricky questions from... Tricky-minded listeners. Oh, nice. Yeah. Good one. I'll, uh, I'm I'll, hoping to satisfy them. Yeah, OK, very good, Max. We'll see. Uh, but our word of the week, first off, is SCAM, S-C-A-M. Well, this set the bounds, actually, for the week that followed, because SCAM is one of those... Well, we know what it means. It's an illegal plan for making money, especially one that involves tricking people. Mm. It's a replacement word for fraud, swindle, dodgy scheme, racket, con trick, bogus plan, hustle, grift, kite or shakedown. But this all paints a picture of what the word means. Scam, no problem. But where did it come from? You know, which is my, my usual track to follow. Well, the set answer is nobody is absolutely sure. Even the most brave and the most learned etymologists all provide the same answer. Origin unclear. Mm -hmm. But they all agree that it might possibly, just might, descend from the word scamp. Now, this comes as a surprise to us because we're living in, in the 21st century and it didn't always... Scamp didn't always mean scam. Scamp in English comes from the old French word escamper, to run away, to make an escape. And in the days of travelling carnivals and circuses, the word scamp meant a swindler, oh. a rogue, a ne'er-do-well, someone who tricked you then got out of the way. Over time, the word scamp became affectionate non-critical. However, when language scholars look at its background, they suggest, just suggest, that the modern word scam might, just might have descended as an abbreviation of the old word scamp. Now, this word might not be welcomed by those of us who prefer to uncover a definite history, but in the case of scam, we have to accept these dreaded words, quote, there is no clear explanation of where the word came from, end quote. But I tend to fancy that the people who said scamp are probably yeah. right. Yeah. Um, another thing that I think a lot of people would agree on, it sounds right. It sounds good, doesn't it? It does, scam. yes. Yes, I hadn't thought that. You're absolutely right. It sounds a scam. It has the appropriate music to it. Whereas when you say the child's a scamp, 
Yeah. It has a sort of joyous sound. Yeah, true. <laughs> but they would play tricks. Tr cheeky monkeys are, are scamps, aren't they? Yes, yes, but they don't steal money or sell false shares in buildings. Yeah, of course, there's a famous movie, The Lady and the Scamp. The Lady and the Scamp? Yeah. <laughs> um, if you want to ask Max a question to do with the origin of words or anything associated with them and phrases and even place names, go to the Weekend Variety Wild webpage. There's an email form there. It should be easily spotable. Uh, ask away. I forward it to Max. You can do the same with Facebook as well. Just leave a message uh, for Max and I'll pass it on. And the PO, the mail is PO Box 8880 Simon Street, Auckland. Or at least I think it still is, yeah. All right. Uh, white Anted, I've heard of this, yes. Well, the listener wrote to say that uh, he'd heard a radio reporter say that Simon Bridges had been white anted. Mm. And uh, the expression was new to him. He asked, what does it mean? Well, the expression is Australian, and so is the ant. Oh. Um, the white ant is a tiny creature described as a dry wood termite. Hundreds of them can bit by bit eat all the timber and buildings from the inside of the wood, leaving surface unblemished so that you're unaware that the termites are inside munching. Oh, and hello, then your house falls down. Exactly, until the widespread munching leaves only a fragile surface structure with no solidity and the building begins to collapse. You don't know until you try to bore a hole with a screwdriver to put a shelf up or a coat hook. The wood looks okay from the outside, but you can find that the timber is completely hollowed out, leaving what? just a thin, thin veneer on the surface. Clever animals, aren't they? It happens in New Zealand, but very rarely, huh? because New Zealand has only three native species of dry wood termites, but Australia has many, many, many species yeah. of dry wood termites. Now, so, Max, apologies for butting in here again, and listeners will be saying, stop interrupting, Max but it is a good time to say in the next hour we are doing a special on news on um, social animals how they get on termites ants wasps all that sort of thing we've got missed social insects um, in the next hour and he'll be talking about such things so oh. what a coincidence well bearing in mind that white ants aren't all that prominent in New Zealand he might or might not include them but you can bring it up if you like yeah yeah we do have native termites but um, I will will be talking ants and wasps and so stuff. the term white anting has grown to mean insiders leaking information which otherwise would not be generally known but when revealed will help undermine the goals of the group the hidden information is about metaphorically somebody has pushed a screwdriver through the wall's surface and let out the crumbling sawdust and ruin hiding behind a smooth exterior the term um, obviously originates in australia which has hundreds of whiteens and it has been used there in the framework of politics. In 2012, um, the former Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions was accused of white-anting the Australian Prime Minister, Julie Gillard. So, the term white-anting has come to refer to the process of internal erosion within a structure. It can refer to a political situation where information from group insiders is leaked or used to undermine the goals of the group. So... What started out with the term describing woman, uh, wooden buildings being eaten from inside, mm. the term to white ant now means to submerge or undermine from within. I see. Yeah, yeah. To, yeah, it's yeah. quite simple once it's, you get it's the good. hang of it. I, I think it's a really clear term. It's lovely and descriptive, isn't it? And it's Aussie. Yeah. Yes, but that's, I think, why the listener said, what mm. does it mean? Because he wasn't familiar with it. It's yeah. not all that often used in New Zealand. No. Now... 
Uh, I've heard this come up. Gosh, I think my father once asked, flammable and inflammable. What's going on here? Because a lot of people think that it's, it, they both must mean the same thing. If you in, if something's inflammable, it should be... No, explain. Right, well, the listener wanted an explanation as well, so here we go. The listener in touch noticed that, the, that injustice is the opposite of justice and that incoherent means the opposite of coherent, so why do flammable and inflammable mean the same thing? Well, the position and the use of the prefix in is a nightmare. Most English-speaking people seem to pick up as they grow up, and only someone as observant as this, this man listening stops to wonder why it can have the meanings of negative and positive, but there's no way out. In can have a positive or negative meaning sometimes. Here is a very abbreviated list of what that tiny little word in, I-N, can mean. Mm. One, it can mean being surrounded by or placed, living in Dunedin or hiding in the wardrobe. It can be the time for something is due to happen or has already happened. The bus will be here in 15 minutes or we met in 2014. It can express a condition to be in love or Granny is now not in good health. It describes an inclusion. I read it in a book. It indicates inclusion in a profession. She works in publishing. It indicates the framework of the medium being used. She said it in French. Someone or something enclosed by something else. Come in, we were locked in. Rising to the highest level, the tide is in. And the, if this is the good one, the ephemera of public opinion. Pastels and light colors are in this oh, year. Oh, yes, fashionable. Well, see, that's a group of situations which are all different, that they all use the word in, and we all understand it quite easily. Now, here's one of the tricky ones. When in is added to an adjective, it can indicate that the meaning's reversed. Fertile or infertile, justice or injustice, complete, incomplete, considerate or inconsiderate. But the listener has landed on one of the big bugbears in English. It's quite right to do so. It found that it didn't make sense when flammable means able to be burned and inflammable also means able to be burned. How did this happen? Well, it was because of two um, Latin words and uh, a slight mistake made by a scholar, which I'll explain. During the early 1600s, English speakers began to use this Latin word, which was actually two Latin words, flammare, to catch fire, with the Latin prefix in, which means to cause, so to cause to catch fire. And this made the English word inflammable, to be able to or to cause to catch fire. Might move the clock forward 200 years into the 1800s. Another scholar coming across the Latin word flammable used it in English by itself. And gradually they're filtered into English use, two words meaning exactly the same thing, but looking as if one was a negative, which yeah. it actually wasn't. Flammable and inflammable actually both mean that something is able to be burnt. They mean that in Latin and in English, and there's been total confusion ever since. But the etymologists have come up with a suggestion, and I strongly suggest that our listener takes up this suggestion. Say flammable 
when you are referring to something that catches fire and burns easily. But if you wish to refer to something that doesn't catch fire and burn, then use the word non-flammable. Ah. Makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not sort of in the dictionary as yet, as far mm. as I know, mm. but it makes sense. Don't ever say the word inflammable, say non-flammable. Now, there are indications that this word non-flammable is slowly being accepted. We must acknowledge that English isn't the only language to have tricky patches. Polish, Cantonese, Urdu, French, Norwegian, Hungarian, almost every other language, they all have some places where wariness is required. Togalog. And our listener has pointed out that wariness is required. If you say flammable or inflammable, it might be better to say flammable and non-flammable. Right. Ingratiate, that's another one, isn't it? Like, you, it's, it doesn't mean not gratiating, it means actually courting favour. I think the word, the beginning of the in sort yeah. of gives the clue there that you're moving in towards something. Right. Well, that's somewhat satisfying, actually. I think the listener will be happy with that answer. It's very complicated. I tried to make it sort of, you know, easy to follow for people who... who uh, so it started off as uh, inflammable and then... Some clever rooster started up flammable and yes, they started yes. marching together. Yes. Yeah, yes, gotcha. Yeah. All right. Uh, Max Cryer answering your questions on the English language. Words, their origin, meaning, all sorts of stuff like that. Always fascinating and we know we'll never, ever, ever, ever run out. Because more words are being uh, invented and used and added to English than we could ever address in one week. And many of them are, are technical. Yeah. And some might get the boot. Stream Like inflammable. Yes, yeah, inflammable skin the boot. You and I will lead the charge, helped by the listener who didn't like the word. There'll be a march down Courtney Place towards Parliament. Get rid of inflammable. And use non-flammable. Yes. Thank you, Max. Uh, we'll take a short commercial break and return very shortly. Weekend. Variety. Wireless. We're back with Max Cryer. If you've asked Max a question and it had anything to do with being white-anted or flammable or inflammable, uh, we've done those already in the first stanza, but you'll be able to listen back to them on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and hear the answers. Uh, go to that page and you'll see uh, a little thing down there. If you scroll down, it says, In Case You Missed Saturday. And that's where you're able to listen to all the things that have happened tonight. Or if you're listening after it, hello. Now, this fascinated me when the question came through, uh, I think it was on Facebook. Cobweb. Yes, I was a bit fascinated too. It was a very polite uh, question. Know what it means, but what's this cob? Yes. I looked at it and thought, I have no idea what the answer to this is. I'm going to have to do some work. So I did, and it is, it's charming. It's a really lovely one. Um, it's based. The word cobweb is based on a phenomenon of nature, which scientists tell us dates back over a million years, as long as spiders have been spinning webs, which they've been doing for over a million years. I now, think the, over 100 million, actually. The word for spider goes back to the 1300s. Uh, its origin had drifted into England from Denmark, related to the Danish spindel, and that came from ancient German spinthron, and they both referred to spinning, so eventually it became the English word spider. Now, at that time, the word in English for web, which the spiders spun, was cop-web, with a P, two Ps. Cop being an ancient English word re related to anything poisonous. Here's the good bit. Cop-web meant something poisonous because cop referred to spiders' webs because their purpose in building a web was to catch and poison their meals. Uh -huh. So it was a cop 
web. Over time, that word cop by the 1600s had gradually become cob, with a b, and sometimes just cob, just cob. And that became, and that became a dialect word for spider. Not widely used, but you will find it in one of the most famous books in the world, Tolkien's Hobbits, 1937. Oh. Does use the word cob, meaning spider. However, by the 1400s, the old word cobweb had changed into cobweb, and the two ways of describing the web still remained in use. This is the good bit. Spider web became the customary way of referring to a web that apparently is still in use, meaning that it's clean. Whereas the 800-year-old word cobweb began being used referring to abandoned dusty webs and gradually moved into a wider field to describe almost anything else which had been neglected, untouched and dusty. Right, that's fascinating. You're absolutely right. It's just one of those exquisite tools that yes, the English language has that you can define between yeah. an active web with a healthy spider in yes. it, maybe catching a fly, yes. but some derelict building that has yes. the yeah. dust in the air, and there aren't... You wouldn't say there are spider webs in the corner. You'd say it was covered in... The piano was covered in cobwebs. Yes, that's exactly it, and that's why when I did the research on this, I felt quite... Marvellous. I got to this bit. Now, just as a point of interest, um, the word cob has many relatives in modern English. Cob can mean a male swan, a hazelnut, a bread loaf of a certain shape, the head of something like a corn cob, a wheat cob, even a herring cob, blackback gull, a gravel mix for building walls, a way of placing stones for a cobble path. And here's a good one. The ancient word cob also can mean friendly and is believed to be the origin of cobber. Oh, really cobber. Isn't that good? I love using cobber. <laughs> yes. It's a good thing. Well, it's a bit of a worry because it comes from the old word of cobwebs, which are all dusty, not used. Oh, well. <laughs> No worries, Cobber. But, but just to reiterate the point, um, spiderweb is clean and dangerous because it's there to get poisonous things in, caught into it, but it looks fresh. Cob, the old, 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 old-fashioned word, mm. cobweb, means one which is neglected, hanging bedaggy in the, in the tree, and anything else which looks old and not used. Mm, a delicious distinction available to be used. OK, um, now... I suspect this might take some time, Max. Oh. Is it going to take some time, our next one? It is going to take some time. There was... <laughs> uh, I'll tell them. There was a funny man called Max who came here and wielded an axe. I'm making this up on the fly. I yes. should have come prepared, but I didn't know you were going to address this. He came through the door. Uh, Graham was no more, and finally Max could relax. That's not bad. Well, for there it. we go. Yeah. It's uh, also not good. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we're talking limericks. I've often wondered why a limerick is called a limerick. We don't call it a New York. We don't talk, call it a um, Brittany. It's just a place, isn't it, on the globe? And what's it got it's to do with ten that? It's about ten different places. Is it really? Mm, yes. So why is a limerick called a limerick? It's a complex thing, which I'll try and not make sort of too complex. Mm. Um... Is there a real connection with the place called Limerick in Ireland, is what I'm suggesting. Well, the Vikings came to Ireland in the year 845, but the name of Limerick area predates that by 300 years. It was called 300 years long before the Vikings came. The original meaning is totally unclear. They grew a time when the Irish language was in use, 
and ever since attempts to place the name into English spelling and pronunciation have been numerous and difficult and there's never been a clear answer. There are several places with versions of that name throughout Ireland, also anglicised, not always sounding like Nimerick, but, but descended from it, and the meaning of the name is elusive. I, I studied a man called P.W. Joyce, who's the author of The Origin and History of Irish Names and Places, and he says the name signifies a bare or barren spot of land, but other scholars have said it means a bare marsh, or, this is a good one, a spot made bare by feeding horses. Wow. So the short answer is nobody knows. Okay. There's also confusion about why we use the name for those little poems we know as limericks. The use of that name has been widely debated and there's, again, no clear evidence. The little poems have been around since 1820. They've been occasionally published, but the big step came in 1846 when Mr. Edward Lear published his Book of Nonsense <laughs> with little verses he'd composed and illustrated. So it didn't start with Shakespeare? He didn't go, there once was a man called Othello, a very strange sort of fellow... I'm not aware that Shakespeare knew about the He liked this Simona, <laughs> thought he could own her. But the point now, but you're, you're jumping the gun. Because Sorry. Edward, Edward Lear published his book of nonsense, which never mentioned the word limericks, and then 1872... Did it not? No. In 18, they were called nonsense verse. Okay. In 1872, he did a second one called More Nonsense. Altogether, Lear wrote over 200 of these little verses, but they were not called limericks. The first known appearance of the word limerick being applied to them was in a letter of 1896 written by Audrey Bedsley and he referred to um, Lear's funny little rhymes as limericks. Now, in those times, what they called Audrey Bedsley called a limerick isn't what we do. It was customary at the time for those little verses to have a final line which was only a variant of the first line ending in the same word but with a difference that sort of created a mildly sort of nonsensical effect. Over time, the structure changed and it became customary to have a final line with more of a punch. And this is the form we encourage now that a limerick should be. Now, here's one of the early ones from 18... What did I say? 1820, 1820. There was an old man with a nose who said, if you choose to suppose that my nose is too long, you are certainly wrong, that remarkable man with a nose. Get out. Now, that seems rather tame compared to what we call a limerick now. Here's another one. There was a young lady whose bonnet came untied when the birds sat upon it. But she said, I don't care, all the birds in my hair are welcome to sit on my bonnet. Now, this was called nonsense verse. I mean, you look quite surprised. Try harder, please, it's, isn't it? It's just amazing <laughs> well, what passed for entertainment in those days. Well, the, we're speaking... Oh, you've got a spinning top that'll 18, keep you busy for hours. Yes, we're speaking 1820, 1846. Those, uh, those two books were published. But they developed slowly the structure which we prefer, uh, that the final line has a relationship with the lines, but but it also has a twist. I like Bugger this. all of a twist in those ones. Well, no, no, no. I said that happens now. Oh, That's yeah, what yeah. was developing. Right. Yeah, yeah. Here's, Sorry. A, here's one with a nice little twist. Okay. There was a young rustic named Mallory who drew but a very small salary. <laughs> when he went to a show, his purse made him go to a seat in the uppermost gallery. That's good. It's nice. It's slightly, it's slightly sort of That's sweet. That's so satisfying, aren't they? But we still have... There is nobody knows why a limerick is called a limerick. No one knows. There is a theory. It's I, universally understood, isn't it? It's widely, widely understood. The reason that it's, it, 
the legend grew is that somebody published one of these little verses in 18-something or other, and they said in a note at the bottom that it was sung, and it was sung to a verse about a, lim- a folk song from Limerick. Uh, and that was the first time uh, the word uh, Limerick... I can see that, yeah. And that's a very frail connection. But mm. I think we tend to think of Limericks as wordplay, yep. such as my final one for this one. Um, there was a young girl from Australia who painted her bum like a dahlia. <laughs> the shape was just fine and the coloured vine, but the smell was a terrible failure. Wonderful. That's great. Um, and shortly... God, I miss him, and I think we all miss him. John Clark. Yes. He did this beautiful treatise on poetry, where he did poetry in the style of... And it takes some knowledge and, you know, he must have completely imbued the style of these various poets in order to take the piss, basically. He was good at that. Though. And what you described as, you know, the early limericks being slightly lame, mm. I had no idea about that, and it actually lent strength to what John Clark did when he did his takeoff of Ed Lear. And well, he's he, bang he, on. It was he who put out the book. He put out the book of... Yeah. But John Clark does his take on Ed Lear and... It was tame. Mm, his stuff was tame. Unbelievable. Anyway, we'll hear that in a mo. But have you got a Today in History What's I that? have indeed. October the 27th on this date. 290 years ago today, a child was born in an English village called Martin in Cleveland. He was the son of a Scottish farm labourer. There were seven other children born in the family, but four died in childhood. The second eldest son survived, went to school in Great Ayton, and when he was 17, he was apprenticed to a haberdasher to sell cloths and clothes. Later, moved to London, and he married Elizabeth Batts, and over time they had six children. Now, the children's father changed his profession by then and was on away, during which time he had major effect on existing knowledge of the world's geography. His name was James Cook, and today would have been his 290th birthday. Oh, James. He didn't do too badly, did he? For a Whitby boy. Unbelievable. He wasn't, actually. Okay. Um, Here's John Clark and his take on Ed Lear and the form we know now as the Limerick. Max, thank you very much. Um, Ted Lear is... um, Uh, one of these uh, poets who, I think he worked for the railways, it said somewhere, but um, he, he popularised the limerick, the form of the limerick, of course, in a, in, in a, particularly in a book of his called Book of Rubbish. Um, he, tragically, though, poor old Ted, failed to recognise that the way to make a limerick work was to have a filthy last line, and if you read any of Ted's works, they are all of the following form. There was an old man with a beard, a funny old man with a beard, he had a big beard, a great big old beard, that amusing old man with a beard. <laughs> he wrote quite a lot of these. He... <laughs> there once was a woman whose hat was a regular brute of a hat. Oh, a hat she did wear on the top of her hair and everyone said, look, a hat. <laughs> He wrote quite a lot of other things that were not limericks, of course, um, including this one called The Pibbledy Pobbledy Man, which is very typical of, um, of Ted's style. When the Yongi Bongi's singly fat on the coast of the Fimbly Far, and the beauteous lady Jingly's hat looks up at the evening star, he weeps alone on the shingly shore, he pumpkinly goes for a walk, drinks his marsala through calico straws, 
he haveth a rustable dork. <laughs> rapidly numerous, vapidly humorous, he mourns with a sweet guitar. The wonderful pussy is loved by the owl who feels a complete galah. <laughs> when the yongi bongi has lost his way, the birds make a nest in his beard. He sits in the afternoon tea tree and regrets it is just as he feared. <laughs> oh, John Clark, we miss you. Uh, Grant Smithies is back. We're looking at albums, carrying on looking at albums from the past of 1978, turning 40. There'll be some nostalgia tron uh, in the atmosphere when we respin the Cars debut album. Hugely popular, mega hits on it. But God, I just think it's plodding. So you probably love it. But I think there's something better than having someone agree with you. I was having a damn good spat. We shan't call it a conversation as people are wont to do these days. Uh, Grant Smithies and myself go head to head. I think it's annoying. The Cars album, Grant Smithies loves it. So no matter what side you're on, uh, you'll have someone to barrack for. That'll be after 11 o'clock, the Cars debut album called The Cars. Enemy like to NME, New Musical Express, just love saying the word eponymous. They write it down thinking they're very, very clever. Oh, it's a fair enough word. It just means something that's named after the thing that it is. So the Cars album is eponymous. Okie dokie, uh, new sport and weather coming up very shortly.